0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: There's like this underlying current uh, with everybody that you need to justify your existence, Mm -hmm. basically, with these major accomplishments. You need to show everybody else like, that you're doing it right. Yeah. That you're living right. But really, you were just given this life. None of us asked for this. right? This this was all a gift. So it's crazy to kind of fall into, and we all do it. I'm not casting judgment on anybody. I do it. Yeah. Uh, to, to kind of fall into these rhythms where you're like, okay, that's what I need to be doing. Rather than... Rather than deciding like or reflecting, just simply reflecting on what are the moments that have brought me joy that no one was grading me. No one was forcing me to do the activity. I was just doing what I wanted to do. And this is why I found I found the uh, exercise, your play history so helpful. And I still return to it, which is what were those things that you did as a kid? The, the activities where you were just left to your own devices, you were on your leisure time, you weren't in school, you weren't, no one was directing you or instructing you to do anything. What were the activities that you were repeatedly and voluntarily turning to? Because that's really your North Star. That's your internal compass. Thanks, Rainey. Thanks for having
0: me back. Yeah, you know, so we had you here uh, actually in the very, very early days of being Unmistakable Creative, right after we had rebranded mm-hmm. from a broadcast FM where we talked about sort of the, the dark side of ambition and how um, you'd, you know, found yourself, despite having achieved sort of what appeared to be the heights of external success at such a young age in a period of, of almost debilitating anxiety, uh, So, you know, I definitely want to talk about that for people who may or may not know your story. But where I want to start is a little bit differently this time, just based on what I know about you and sort of the the social groups that you've built as an adult. And that is what social group were you a part of in high school? And how did that end up impacting the choices that you've made with your life and your career?
1: interesting so can you be a little bit more specific on yeah social group?
0: yeah i mean who are the people what were the people that you hung out in uh hung out with in high school like were they the jocks were they the nerds were you know were you somebody who could navigate multiple social groups and and you know what impact did these people have on on your life and your choices
1: yeah so it was mostly the latter um i i tended to hang out with athletes because i was an athlete myself but um so i hung out with baseball, basketball players. But generally speaking, I just gravitated toward anybody who had a good sense of humor or uh, someone who wanted to do things. So for instance, in my senior year, I found myself hanging out with a lot of people on student council because I had to run uh, for for student council because I wanted to make the pep rally videos Mm -hmm. uh, at our pep rallies. Because prior to my senior year, I thought our pep rallies were terrible, <laughs> and so I wanted I wanted to, it to be a fun and funny experience for the student body. And I just assumed, okay, I have in order for me to take part in that, I have to be on student council. So I did this big campaign. Uh, I won uh, vice president with uh, my friend Zach, and then we were making pep rally videos. And it was only later on that I found out, hey, you could have just made these videos <laughs> would have played them uh you didn't have to run for a student body but i think in high school um you know i i just like hanging out with people who uh, were kind were funny and liked to do things outside of their homework uh-huh. uh, so whether it was pranks whether it was uh, a little side project or something and I've always gravitated to those, to those types of people and and just wanting to be friends with them.
0: So you you mentioned that you're an athlete and this is a question that i wanted to ask Yannick Silver yesterday. And I keep finding this pattern between everybody I know who's accomplished anything of of significance. And that is that they all seem to have some physical activity that really kind of is a major driver behind, you know, their life, their creativity and, you know, the work that Mm. they do. Um, and, and I'm curious, you know, what did you learn about work ethic and uh, grit and persistence from athletics that you've applied in your life as an adult? And do you uh, find this uh, physical, you know, uh, outlet to be the case with all of the people that you know in your life as well?
1: That's it's a really interesting observation. Um, I know for a fact. So I pitched for 12 years mm-hmm. and I think that was a huge um, that really shaped uh, how how I approach work, how, how comfortable and confident I am to kind of take charge of, of the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it just fit my personality really
3: well to be a pitcher. So even from a young age, I mean, I was. I my dad's told me
1: the story that um, there was a game when I was pretty young where uh, the the score we were down by or we were up by one run, final inning bases were loaded, no outs, and I told the coaches, put me in. Like I want to go in. And my dad was he was he was thinking that's that's just a crazy thing to just want responsibility for. Uh-huh. Because most people that that's a that's a nail biting situation. Yeah. And I went in and I I got all three three outs and we won the game. Mm-hmm. And Pitching really gave me the confidence to, um, to have control over a lot of things going on. And it gave me the ability to sit and think mm-hmm. or, or stand and think and try and outsmart whoever was in front of me and try and read their mind. I mean, pitching is a total, total mind game. You know, you gotta you gotta be good. You gotta be physically good at throwing a ball and getting it in the same spot that you want it to go. But you also have to be thinking a lot about what's going on all around you, as well as in front of you. Every single I mean, otherwise baseball's a pretty (laughs) it's a pretty boring game (laughs) if you're out
2: in right field just kind of waiting for
0: the ball to come to you. You know. Yeah.
1: so I baseball for me was was huge because now my role in what I what I consistently get paid to do is basically to strategize for other people uh-huh. uh, trying to make an impact on a big audience. Yeah. Right. In, in thinking in terms of how can I how can I do all these different things with one straight, straight strategy or straight line uh-huh. um, and then basketball. I learned that uh, I wasn't all that good. <laughs> I wasn't, <laughs> wasn't as good at. Uh, I was really good at pitching, but uh-huh. I was not that good at basketball. Um, so basketball gave me some humility and, uh, and in like learning to uh, to just ride the bench when necessary to help uh, the team. And I think sports is so. Crucial, I think, for everybody because um, both the individual and the team sports. Because Uh you get to know yourself, but you also get to uh, to socialize and work together. And going on those road trips uh, with with your team and bonding is such a huge thing. It's it's friendship. Mm -hmm. And what is life
0: without friendship? So yeah, yeah, just always having that sense of like friendship is always important.
1: Uh-huh. I think
0: is, is really huge. You, for me. It's interesting because you know I, I didn't play team sports, but I was in the marching band. Which you know, I, I, like you get PE credit for marching band, and when you're carrying around a fifty pound tuba running around a, a football field, you're like, okay, I deserve PE credit for this. And, and I think there's definitely some team element to that as well. But I, I think one of the regrets I had from high school was not playing a team sport, and you know, like I gravitated towards board sports because in my experience, when I was on a team, I was like, okay, I'm always the worst player on the team, <laughs> and. Uh, yeah. You know, but I, I think that it, what's interesting is a lot of the lessons that you've got from, you know, the sports you played in high school, I have taken as an adult from board sports, and I, I think they've made a pro- – all of them have had a profound impact on every aspect of my life, and it's a pattern that I keep running across. in everybody that I talk yeah. to, like either avid skiers, avid snowboarders, avid surfers, or they have something, you know, part of me wonders if, if part of the reason they're all drawn to these things is because these are all sort of gateways to flow, which amplifies performance.
1: They are. And, you know, it, now that you, you mentioned board games, I remember reading an interview with Reed Hoffman, mm-hmm. uh, the co founder of LinkedIn. He's known as the Oracle in Silicon Valley for being right about so many uh, big companies and, and investments. And he said that growing up, he played a lot of uh, strategy board games. Mm-hmm. And he said it was so helpful to him later on in life because they would make up new rules that would change everything. Mm -hmm. as they were playing so what do you do when
3: the style of play that you've grown
1: accustomed to completely changes how do you adjust are you going to be thrown into a state of panic or are you going to go with the flow Mm -hmm. and retrain himself to do that and i think playing anything playing any sort of game i mean Oh, what's his name? He's a, he was he was a chess master, and then he went into Tai Chi. Josh Wadeskin mm-hmm. He has he has a book called The Art of Learning. Yeah. Where he he talks about the, his mastery in these different sports and the effect that it had on him in the way he thinks and the way he operates. I mean, you just get so many benefits. Uh, no matter what activity you do, really. Yeah. I mean, I have, I have another friend named Shane Niemeyer who attests to he's he's an. Uh, world-class, like world-ranked uh, Ironman triathlete, and he, he, he really attests to uh, the meditative benefits of running, uh-huh. meditative benefits of swimming, and the effect it has on your mind. There's all this research that shows as soon as you start exercising uh, at, at a certain degree of intensity, your brain looks like it's on fire when it's under these machines that measure the activity going on there because there's so much circulation going on and there's just so many benefits to doing sports. I think, plus it's fun.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I noticed my best work almost always happens, um, after, you know, a couple of hours in the water, a couple of days on the mountains, like all of that is always one of the major drivers behind how I produce so much of what I do. Yeah. Well, so, Walk me through how you get from high school to college to doing the work that you do. You know, I know that some people have probably heard some of this story, Um, you know, give us sort of the condensed version of it and and how you've ended up doing this, because I think one of the things that I have found really interesting about your work is that you developed this really sort of keen ability to connect with highly influential people and add a tremendous amount of value to their lives uh, to the point where you ended up with, you know, a situation that most people fresh out of college could only dream of.
1: Yeah, yeah i mean i was i was very fortunate but i but i've also found that after teaching some of this stuff to others that other people are able to do it just as easily mm-hmm. uh, if they're intelligent and ambitious so um to give you the the story behind going from high school to college um I guess one one of the things that was kind of pivotal for me was in high school I actually developed, uh, in my senior year of high school I developed bursitis in my shoulder. Mm -hmm. So I I'd really hit my stride in pitching and going into that season I felt like I was at the height of my game. I could hear the ball hissing as it was leaving my hand, I mean I had so much control. Uh, uh, Players on my team who'd seen me pitch for years. In batting practice, we're calling over other players to watch my curveball. They're like, "Look at this! This is ridiculous!" So I really felt like, "Boy, senior year is going to be a great season." Um, but before the season started, I felt a stabbing pain in my shoulder every time I threw the ball, and I lost 15 miles an hour on my fastball basically overnight—15 uh, to 20 miles an hour, which is—it's massive, mm. right? You can't be a pitcher anymore. So. Um, I started playing around with my video camera during the season because I kept having to sit out every game and I started taking videos and and developing this skill as a videographer And I would go back and edit the videos and that carried with me through college. I I got really into making video um, in in video content making video of my friends trying to make video of I I was entering into film Festivals. That was one of the first major projects I did on my own, my first year of college with my roommates, um, and I, man, I just I, I loved it. So I was so I felt so fortunate because this one love of my life that had dominated my life uh, was so quickly replaced by this other great thing, mm-hmm. and uh, that became my first side business uh, that I did. Uh, all throughout college was making videos. Um, in college, I I went to Colorado State University. I didn't know any entrepreneurs. I, I think I'd learned the word entrepreneur when I was in college. But I started reading uh, entrepreneurial books. I started uh, learning that, wow, you could actually create a business and you don't necessarily have to be doomed to getting a, a job that you don't like. I remember reading uh, Ben Kaznoka's book, mm-hmm. uh, My Startup Life. Yeah. And Ben Kaznoka actually, he's a couple years younger than me, but he actually co wrote, um,
2: and I'm 30 years old, mm-hmm. uh, he co wrote uh, The Startup of You
1: with Reed Hoffman later on. And uh, I remember reading his blog and him writing, I'm going to be in Colorado just paying a visit. Um, does anybody want to meet up? And I, I said, Hey, I'll pick you up from the airport if you'd like. Um, because I, I was just amazed that that there was somebody younger than me who had started a business. And I thought that was just so uh, incredible. And, And he wrote back and he said, yeah, sure. Pick me up. And I couldn't believe it. I found myself picking him up from the airport and I was like, Oh my God, I cannot believe I'm meeting a stranger from the internet and somebody whose work I admire. Like, this is crazy. And I drove him from DIA to Boulder, which was, I think, a couple hours. <clears throat> and I got to hang out with him. And that was the very first experience of me uh, reaching out cold to somebody who I admired and actually developing a bit of a friendship with them. Mm-hmm. And so, I started, you know, I started thinking how I could do that more, and then by the time I graduated, uh, it was 2008, so it was a recession, mm-hmm. right? I had interned with an ad agency, and they basically said after three months, tough luck, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, we're we're not hiring." And so that, in addition to the fact that no one was really hiring because of the recession, was it, it was like a cold bucket of water to the face where my expectations were hey I, I, this this company really loves me like I'll be able to get a job here no problem and I spent the next three months applying to over a hundred jobs a uh, hundred job listings that I just didn't want at all and um, getting ignored by basically all of them and not landing any offers whatsoever and I remember um, a certain point. A friend of mine uh, was—I ran into him at a bar, and he said he was so excited because he just landed a sales rep position at a Verizon Wireless uh, store. And this was somebody who spent four years in college uh, studying finance or whatever. And I just thought—you know—it's no judgment against them or, or or people who work at Verizon by any means, but I just thought. Man, if this is if this is how if this is a success story, then I need to not follow the same strategy that all of all of us are doing right now. Mm-hmm. I need to stop applying for jobs and do something different. And that's that's kind of what changed everything. You know, I I, I started reaching out. I I told my parents, look, I'm going to spend the next couple months just trying to work for free with people I admire in in creating projects for myself. That way I'll have a portfolio. At least I'm doing something that I care about and maybe something will pan out. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what got the ball rolling. You know, I, I got a chance to have a virtual internship with Seth Godin. And then I worked with Rameek Sethi, the author of I will teach you to be rich. I cold reached out to him and I said, I love your stuff. It has made a huge impact on my life, but hey, man, you're you're neglecting YouTube. You're great on video. Why don't I do your video stuff for free? And he said, Yeah, absolutely. By the way, do you want to help me market my book? And we marketed his book together. And I'm pretty good at marketing. I've, I've always been a had a knack for it. So um, we and Ramit had a great big audience that, that was really responsive to the game plan that we executed, and so he, he hit the bestseller list and he hit uh, number one overall on Amazon, over mm-hmm. Twilight at the time. Wow. Which was amazing.
0: So,
1: <laughs> so once I had that under my belt, I, I had kind of free reign to, to talk to anybody. Um, so I, I reached out to Tucker Max. Um, and got to be his videographer on his nationwide movie tour Uh, and then Ramit and Tucker and Ben Kaznoka all recommended me to Tim Ferriss and Tim Ferriss and I started working together I worked with him for free for a little bit then he started paying me and then he made me a full-time offer and I I ended up being his first full-time employee moved out to San Francisco uh, when I was like 23 years old, found myself working, uh, as a right hand man for one of my biggest heroes. Uh, i loved the four hour work week in college. So it was just like, uh, I was like, pinch me, you know, this is, this is unbelievable. So that's, that's kind of how I got to the place that I got to. And, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, one, I just felt, so incredibly blessed and lucky to, to have all these wonderful things happen with with people I, I just admire uh, but like I said um, you know I ended up writing recession proof graduate uh, the book to, to teach people how I did it and I've heard from so many people over the years that have done the same thing mm-hmm. and have been able to set up relationships with amazing people and get their foot
2: in the door where they otherwise couldn't
0: Um, one of the things I'm curious about, and I don't think I've asked you this before, uh, in our, in our previous conversations is what did you learn about mindset, behavior and habits from being up close and personal to people like Ramit, people like Ben, people like Tim Ferriss, because I think they accomplish things that for many of us are are things that we're aspiring to.
1: Yeah. You know, man, I've, I've been asked this question before by others and it's, it's like, it's hard to almost put into words how many different lessons I've learned from all of them, right, because mm-hmm. I've learned so much. But I'll, I'll try and break down a few for each of them and hopefully it does them a little bit of the justice. Uh, for Tim, one of the things that really helped me uh, was him rewriting some of my emails. So he would, he would be very professional in his emails and he would try and find win-wins and it, basically if I had to distill it down into the simplest explanation, it's basically this, is that he approaches uh, other people, other companies from the perspective of, I want to help promote you. I want to help you get to where you're going, right? So if he wanted to include um, you know, a, a, a supplement that he loved to help promote the four-hour body and he needed to get a lot of that inventory, he wouldn't go in and ask them, hey, can you give me a bunch of your inventory for free? But he'd say, he'd really make it clear what a huge win it was going to be for them. It was free advertising. Mm-hmm. They were going to be put in front of this big audience. The The past uh, clients that he'd worked with or the past organizations he'd worked with were big names. Like this was an obvious thing for them. And so really thinking in terms of how can this be... Uh, a win-win for both of us. How can this be about us and not just what I can get? And I think anybody can apply that to their life. If you want to partner up with somebody, focus on what the win is for them and get really clear on the kind of results, the specific numbers or whatever that you can drive for them. And then people are gonna be saying yes to you more. So Tim was always brilliant at that. Um, With Ramit, let's see, what did I learn? from, from Rameet, you know, I I loved working with Rameet because he was always just game to try new things. And he was open to, you know, some of the earliest stuff that we did together were funny videos for his audience because I said, you know, you got this great sense of humor, but all you do is kind of show the serious uh, side of yourself that gives financial advice in, in your videos. You don't want to be too dry during this launch, so we made uh, a, a fake saga about him about how he had a secret obsession with Susie Orman um, we made a, an April Fool's uh, joke video where it, it was called let's get rich bitch and um, <laughs> it, was, it was ridiculous tips on how to save pennies so stuff like making a lint blanket out of the lint in your, in your dryer or using tree leaves as Kleenex and stuff like that Um, so just having that experimental open mindset to kind of try new things Um, another thing I I learned from Tim really is that he was very relationship focused he he was always like trying to meet up with people in person and I think the temptation is you know you, you just do calls or you know emails or whatever but he really was diligent about setting up long dinners with people setting up meetups and that that really stuck with me yeah with Tucker I'd have to say the first word that comes to mind is is generosity you know he's I think he's a a rich person and he'll always be a rich person because he's just so giving and he's he's very uh non-judgmental very compassionate and these are not words that a casual reader of Tucker Max would <laughs> use to describe him. You know, they would yeah. say he's an asshole. He's insensitive. If you talk to any of his close friends, they have nothing but great things to say about him. And I've known Tucker for close to I don't know eight, ten years now, and um, he's he's always been focused on. Uh, he's, I mean. Like you said before this call, Srini. I mean, he's he's there for you during the tough times, mm-hmm. and he's he's been that way for a lot of his friends. And I can certainly attest to the fact that Tucker was there for me, maybe more than anybody, including my girlfriends at the time, mm-hmm. uh, girlfriend at the time, girlfriend at the time when I was going through difficult times. Uh, more understanding, more helpful, and uh,
0: more. He he was a mentor. Mm -hmm. You know, he he did. He's done a wonderful
1: job at that. So those are those are a few things that I've learned
0: from those guys. Well, let's talk about what sort of prompted this whole notion of, uh, you know, falling in love with your work so that your work becomes play and and using that work to change the world. Like, where did that come from? And, and, you know, what 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 prompted your inquiry into this idea of of looking at work?
1: Yeah. So in my last book, I wrote, I wrote played away a workaholic's care for anxiety because I went through this tough period where I just felt really burned out. I felt really anxious instead of, you know, I started off working with these guys because I thought, man, it's going to be so fun, so exciting to, to help them get to the next level. And at some point, it kind of transitioned to this is about uh, the money, this is about results, this is about like getting things done super productively, this is about working all the time, grind, grind, grind. Um, and I was I was pushing myself to do that. To be clear, like I didn't have somebody behind me cracking the whip. It was just like me wanting to be the best at what I did and wanting to be super reliable and awesome and. I burned myself out, I, I, I just didn't sleep, I, I drank a bunch of coffee, three to five cups a day, blah blah blah. What got me out of that was uh, after trying everything for for years in being in this state of misery and constant dread, what got me out of that was returning to play, actually. I, I read a book called Play by Stuart Brown, mm-hmm. and this, this doctor, he actually studied what mass Killers, what serial murderers have in common with each other. He was hired by the government to research this. And he found that their childhood was severely deprived of play. And um, his book talks about the benefits of play, what it does for all species that play is it gives us more creativity, it gives us more empathy, it is um, a release valve for stress. It is literally. How we uh, form relationships with each other, how we learn, how we develop skills—like there's so many evolutionary benefits of play. So I started adding play back into my life, and it released the anxiety within weeks. Like I was back to normal. I loved life again, and it blew my mind. And so, what what I was doing when I was I was uh, putting together the book is I was studying. Were there other people who who really believe in this? I I don't know if there are other people who believe in play because I found it it impacted my work. My work was better. It came easier. I was more creative. And so I I was keeping track of these stories and stuff that I found of our world's greatest workers, people like Edison and Einstein and Steve Jobs and Oprah and J.K. Rowling and, and Plato and Bob Dylan, all these people seem to view life as in, and their work as a game, as a means of amusement, as, as a means of fun. In my favorite part of the book of Play It Away was this section of quotes that I had from all those people about how to approach your work, how to approach life. Life must be lived as play, as Plato said. And, um, and Mark Twain said, when we talk about the great workers of the world, we really mean the great players of the world. Warren Buffett, he said, it's not work to me, it's just play. Um, And I just kept running into that over and over, and I thought, man, wouldn't it be cool if this was its own book, if it was like a coffee table book full of portraits of the people who said these things, and maybe a a byline of the things that they accomplished. And um, so I, I
0: started putting that together, and that's that's the book that i just <laughs> just came out with hmm. wow yeah so you and i were talking uh before we we hit record here about a, a couple of different things the notions of extrinsic and intrinsic motivation uh you know what you called an external paycheck and an internal paycheck and you know i want to talk about the role that those things uh play in uh no pun intended in making your work feel like play because i, I think that I think in my mind, we have this sort of misguided notion of passion in that you just wake up one day and you have this passion and and suddenly you're like, oh, I, I love doing this thing that I do every day. And, you know, Cal Newport told me, he said, I think we put the cart before the, the, the horse when yeah. it comes to passion. And Tina Selig said, you know, we, we, you know, passion follows engagement. And I'm just curious kind of, you know, what your experience and, you know, what the people that you've interacted with have, has showed you about, you know, uh, both sort of the discovery of passion and the role of extrinsic and intrinsic motivation in making your work actually feel this way.
1: Yeah, I, I completely agree with Cal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think... The way it develops is not like turning on a light switch and suddenly, yeah, I'm really passionate about this. And in fact, I don't think I've ever described anything I've worked on as I'm really passionate about it. You know That, that seems to be reserved for causes rather than the actual work itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the way it develops is you, you're initially curious about something and then that slowly or rapidly develops into fascination over it. And then as soon as you get your hands into it and get over the hump of this is a difficult thing and now it, it comes more easily, it's, it's continually fascinating to you, it's, it's continually exciting to you, and it's continually challenging to you. Then it sort of develops into this, this is my, this is my playground, mm-hmm. this is where I go to, to, to play, this is where I fall into flow. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned video editing earlier because that is it for me unquestionably. Yeah. Yeah. I every time I do it, I'm challenged. I'm in love with the work, no matter how hard it is, no matter no matter what, no matter what the subject. I will look up, and it's four a.m. and I have no idea. Uh-huh. And so that it takes work to get there, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. many years to get there. And in video editing used to be fricking frustrating to do. It uh-huh. was brutal. It was slow, and and I came in right at the the beginning of iMovie coming into play on these old Macs that used to take minutes every time you made a single edit to re-render. So you could. It was just. It, it took forever. Uh-huh. Um, and it was even worse for people before me. So I'm I'm lucky, um, but it takes you know for some people that might be stand-up comedy i I also love improv but i don't love it in the same way yeah where i just want to do it over and over and
0: never stop you know so it takes it takes work it takes the curiosity (laughs) stage it takes the fascination stage it takes you getting over the hump of the work no longer being clunky and uh-huh.
1: super difficult, but getting to some point where you're like, okay, I'm, I'm up on two feet and I'm
2: moving
0: now. Yeah. So do you have days where you, despite having done this for so long, are like, holy shit, like this just isn't going well? Like, You have bad days? Because as a writer, I can tell you, as somebody who writes every single day, there are certain mornings where I wake up and I'm like an hour, hour and a half into it. I feel that it's a lost cause. But the thing that keeps me going is, I'm like, you know what, I'll be back tomorrow, so it doesn't matter. You know, Adam Grant and I spoke, and he said, you know, one of the common patterns that he found uh, among people who had, you know, um, incredible creative work and, and creative breakthroughs was that they actually produced a high volume of work.
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, you know the study, right, where they, they, they had a college professor who had two classes, and he, he said to one of them, Uh, It may have been a high school teacher, but uh, he said to one of them, I want you guys to focus on making the best pot possible. Not marijuana, but like (laughs) a container. I want you to make the best one that you can this semester. Uh And then to the other class, he said, I want you guys to focus on making as many as possible. And the second class was the one that consistently had better work like overall because they, they were able to practice it over and over and over. So, yeah, I mean, it's the people who are able to continually practice. And I think looking at it like that is the only sustainable way of doing it. I think it's it's easy as a creative to get lost in the result, mm-hmm. you know, to, to only focus on the outcomes that are to come and to feel disappointed when they don't.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And it, I mean, we, I think all of us have fallen into that trap, but really the the reward should be the work itself in mm-hmm. the, in the excitement, in the process of coming to those outcomes. It's just another, uh, step along the path and it,
0: and it can take a while to find that work. You mm-hmm. know, not everything is that work for you. I mean, I'm a writer too. Yeah. That
1: writing does not give me that same like oomph that <laughs> video does. Sure.
0: So I want to talk about this idea of uh, outcomes and process and detachment, because I find myself going back and forth between, you know, being able to say, okay you know what? I don't care about the results. I'm in this for the process. Like, I think it as much as I wanted to convince myself in the process of having my first traditionally published book that I'm not attached to the results when it didn't meet some of my expectations. I kind of got a a little bit of a rude awakening and thought, okay, you know what? That was like a gut check moment. And now it's time to truly let go of this. And I'm curious, do you still have moments where you find yourself attached to results and and how do you get over them? Oh yeah, of course. I mean,
1: it's, it's only natural. I mean, I'm running a freaking Kickstarter, right? The results are staring me in the face. (laughs) So I can't help it. Yeah. Um, But um, you know, the process Itself. If the process is not fun and rewarding, yeah, then what are you doing? You know, the, like that's
0: that's life. Yeah, you know, life
1: is the process.
0: Well, it's funny you say that because I think that one of the other sort of weird things that has happened as a byproduct of our online sort of world, where everybody's lives are perpetually on display, and it seems like everybody's accomplishing all these amazing things is that all you see is the accomplishment and you don't see the process and you convince yourself that you'll fall in love with the process because it might lead to the accomplishment. Um, And, and, you know, you've got this this way. You know, Noam Chomsky had this quote about manufacturing consent, which, you know, Danielle Laporte wrote about in her recent book. And and I think to to some degree we all manufacture consent uh, and we manufacture a consent around the idea of what a fulfilling and rewarding life looks like and people don't question it at all.
1: Can you explain manufacturing consent a little bit
0: more? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the idea, the idea is that, okay, you know, we have conversations like this one and, and like many of the others that I've had on the show, we read blogs like Tim Ferriss's or books like Tim Ferriss's and we come up with this collective agreement of what a good life or what a fulfilling life or what a rewarding life actually looks like. And we end up creating these standards that in some cases are impossible to meet. And in a lot of cases, we're never ours to begin with. And so yes. what you get is this tremendous amount of dissatisfaction that comes from this narrative that, you know, to some degree, we've all perpetuated.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's there's like this underlying current uh, with everybody that
3: you're you need to justify your existence mm-hmm. basically, with these major accomplishments. You need to
1: show everybody else like that you're doing it right. that you're living right but really you were just given this life none of us asked for this 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 was all a gift so it's crazy to kind of fall into and we all do it I'm not casting judgment on anybody I do it Uh, to, to kind of fall into these rhythms where you're like okay that's what I need to be doing rather than Rather than deciding like, or reflecting, just simply reflecting on what are the moments that have brought me joy that no one was grading me. No one was forcing me to do the activity. I was just doing what I wanted to do. And this is why I found I found the uh, exercise, your play history so helpful, and I still return to it, which is what were those things that you did as a kid? the the activities where you were just left to your own devices you were on your leisure time you weren't in school you weren't no one was directing you or instructing you to do anything what were the activities that you were repeatedly and voluntarily turning to because that's really your north star that's your internal compass hmm. sending you to these activities right
0: mm-hmm. what
1: were what were those activities for you straight
0: Boy, as a kid, funny you mentioned video editing so much because, um, had I realized it when I was in college, you got to remember, I think you and I have about a 10 year age gap. So, video editing was even more of a pain in the ass when I was in college. But I I mean, I think the one of the things when I looked back was my natural tendency anytime a new piece of technology was introduced into my life was to make something with it. And some of my earlier experiments were doing stuff with like music and slideshows for, you know, the Indian Student Club at Berkeley. Um, and Mm. I remember, you know, I, I think. I spent something like 80 hours putting together this slideshow. Like it was a PowerPoint. You know, this was when, you know, we didn't have anywhere near the sophistication of tools we did. So like I had to make every soundtrack work within PowerPoint. And I mean, I had a field day. It was like my version of making a movie. And, you know, I mean, I would stay up till two in the morning working on this thing and it didn't ever feel like work. Uh, That was one of them. Uh, You know, funny enough, I mean, I've started writing about this in my upcoming book, but you know, my first job out of college, I hated with a passion, but one of my friends started a website which was like a blog before blogs existed. And we would all, you know, write these crazy stories about what was going on in our lives. So, you know, I had this, you know, a, a, a PG, much more lame version of what Tucker's stories were called summer of Srini. And, You know, so I could always find these threads of making something, um, whether that be in the form of writing, whether that be in the form of multimedia. um, That that was definitely one place. I mean, for me, the athletic aspect of it didn't happen until much later. And I I think that was dumb luck, um, you know, because I never got the same joy from sports because I was I was pretty bad at them. But for some reason, surfing and and snowboarding really changed all of that for me. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, you know. It's funny listening to you describe it. It sounds like when you were just doing stuff that you want to do, when you were just going out and creating. Mm-hmm. The amazing thing is, everyone has permission to do that every single day of their life. And very few people take take that responsibility seriously, or they, or they very few of them choose to do stuff for for its own sake, for the for pleasure. Yeah. Right. And that is the key to getting whatever job you want instead of coming to people and asking, like, will you pay me to do whatever it is that you tell me to do? Yeah, you're coming to them and saying, hey, I made this awesome thing. It's a gift for you to use or just for your amusement or whatever. And that's where your best work comes from. Is from this place of like, I just wanted to make this. I thought it'd be cool.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And I wanted to share it with you. I thought it could help you or I thought you'd get a kick out of it. Like every job offer will come from that that you want. Yeah, That's where your best work comes from. And that's where you're having the most fun. Uh,
0: you know, I, I want to ask you one other question. Um, having been through a formal education and having had this post-college work experience, how do you view education now? Like, what is your perspective on it?
1: Yeah, so I mean, my perspective is similar to a lot of people's right now, which is like, look, college is great. It's way too expensive for, for what it is, and your your education should be you should be what you do for the rest of your life. You know, it, education is what is done to you, but learning is what you do for yourself. So, choose learning over education. And you don't have to put yourself in a
0: compromised financial position to do it. Mm-hmm. You can do it for free even. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's, that's pretty
0: much it. Wow. So um, I have one last question, which is how we finish all of our uh, interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Answer from life. <laughs> I know I had something great. I wish you could edit that into this. Uh, what do I? What do I think
1: uh, makes somebody unmistakable? Yeah. I think when they found what's what's theirs is when they're doing stuff solely for their own, not solely for their own pleasure, but primarily for their own internal paycheck. Right. One of the quotes that really sticks with me is what J.K. Rowling said about why she wrote the Harry Potter series. And she had tons of pressure. Right. She had millions of fans at this point. She had all the money she wanted. want. And she said, I just write what I wanted to write. I write what amuses me. It's totally for myself. And I think. That is where unmistakable comes from. I I heard it in Martin Scorsese who said, when I'm making a film, I'm the audience. Mm -hmm. And Peter Jackson, who made the Lord of the Rings film, said um, the best films come from the films that you most want to make, basically. So make stuff for yourself. Do it for yourself, first and foremost. And that's how you can be unmistakable.
0: Well, um, I think that makes a very fitting end to uh, wrapping up our conversation. So where can people learn more about you, your work, and uh, the Kickstarter for the book?
1: Yeah, so um, they can learn about the Kickstarter for the book, obviously, on Kickstarter. Just look up Play for a Living. Um, It's really cool. Watch the trailer. It's a lot of fun. And you can learn more about me at charliehone.com. If you struggle with anxiety, type in... Uh, anxiety cure on Google. It's the first non-sponsored link that comes up and you can find my books on Amazon.
0: Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the unmistakable creative podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
2: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi.
3: luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, What if you could turn that fear into creative fuel?